you trust your department. If you don't, go somewhere else. You should be trusting your department or building a culture that's trustworthy. The leadership is, is really not a rank, really. It's a set of behaviors. It really is. I mean, you know, we're all born with, with a little bit of talent, but we really have to work hard to, to kind of get where we need to get. Don't expect anything to be given to you. Take nothing for granted. That, that will save your backside nine times out of 10, if not 99.9 .9 times out of 10. So welcome everybody to the Kitchen Table Leadership Conversations. In this podcast, we sit down with leaders and mentors around the region to talk all things leadership. We call it the kitchen table because we know some of the best conversations at the firehouse take place at the kitchen table. And the goal with this podcast is to focus that kitchen table energy into talking leadership. I'm your host, Bill Mazza. Deputy Fire Chief Bill Max with us once again today. Thank you, Bill, for helping us continue this leadership conversation. I wouldn't miss it, man. Thank you. Today, we're at one of the many kitchen tables here at the King County Medic One office in Kent, Washington. We are happy to have Chief Andrew Tate of King County Medic One, Division Chief of Health and Safety, PIO, and Emergency Manager. Chief Tate has also served as a Union Ship Rep, VP, and current MSO and Division Chief Rep for Local 2595 King County Paramedics Association. With King County Medic One, he started as a paramedic, <clears throat> A platoon actor, MSO, B platoon actor, MSO of ALS training and continuity of care for Medic One, Division Chief, of emergency management, PIO, and health and safety. Chief Tate started his career at Haynes Volunteer Fire Department in Alaska, shortly went to Portland to work in the private sector, went to Las Vegas to start his paramedic career before shortly coming up to Bremerton Fire Department here in Washington in 1989. He joined King County Medic One in 1991. He also has a bachelor's in business management and leadership. A quote and philosophy of Chief Tate I'll share before we start this conversation. He says, I like to believe that caring for Mrs. Smith is the greatest assignment or job one can ask for. A large part of my division's responsibilities is to develop relationships, train with and provide assets for our stakeholders, always driving to complete our mission by investing time, resources, and leadership input necessary to be and have a successful team. Good morning, Andy. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you so much. It was a great introduction. I'm I want to start off, uh, first of all, thank you for the invite this morning. I do miss these 6 a.m. workouts with the training officers. Bill, How are you, Bill? We missed you this morning, Bill. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't there. It was a push. It was a, uh, it was a good one, especially when you uh, followed the directions of Steve Rossin, which was on the board, my friend. He was on the board. Uh, we're good. Uh, before we get into this conversation, start off with what a great way to get the day going. Six a.m. team workout. Yeah, I think that you know, and we we've talked about this even in the other podcast. I think it's a way of you know starting the day. Mm -hmm. In, in getting a little bit in shape, but also it's that is that team teamwork. One of the special things about doing that is that you give a group of people that start the day off, uh, you know, working together. Yeah, there's a lot of alpha team members, you know, that come in there, and <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's necessarily a competition, but individually and collaboratively, and you can accomplish a lot in there in a very short period of time. Thirty minutes, man, you can gas out real quick in there because these are programmed workouts and I think not only are they helpful for the individual but they definitely help that team go. And it's that period after too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean when you're kind of resting and, and we walk we, around a lot. Yeah. And we we've had some of our best meetings in the hallway after. So absolutely. I remember uh before they built these new showers here, everyone fighting for a shower, uh, three showers and point training officers got up. 
now he's likely just in hot water. Yeah, that's true. And it's hot water this morning, so. So first, before we get into this, tell the audience more about you and Tate. Tell us about your family life, hobbies, your journey in the fire service, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, thanks so much. And again, thanks so much for having me. But I, I wanted to make this a, maybe a little bit different than our typical leadership podcast or leadership books or whatever, in the sense that I wanted to make sure that there was a little bit of rawness to it and a real some emotion to it, because not all of us come from uh, a template. Not all of us come, you know, from a black and white society. A lot of it is it can be somewhat confusing at times, and, and frankly, can be a little bit hurtful to helpful. And uh, that's kind of my life. And I don't want to dwell on it, but I do want to make sure that it is part of a foundation that helps us better, maybe better understand where where some people come from and some others don't necessarily come from. But <clears throat> thanks again. So I'm one of five kids. Uh, my parents and my siblings immigrated from uh, Glasgow, Scotland, kind of the center part of, of Scotland, and they settled in a small community in southeast Alaska called Haynes. My parents were actually heading to New Zealand, so I'm, that kind of sucks that <laughs> we didn't finish up there. But my aunt from from over there had already had already came over, and they'd already kind of established themselves. So we we stopped there. My dad was in the military; he was a former SAS trooper from 22SAS. Uh, my mom was a scrub nurse in Glasgow, my dad being from the west side of Scotland, Stranraer, my mom being from central or um, from Glasgow. So they came in, they built a bakery. Uh, my dad had no idea how to work in the public sector like that, you know, in dealing with people, or the private sector rather, in the sense that um, service industry was just not something he really knew much about, but he learned and they built that, that business. And, <clears throat> When I was about six, they kind of turned that over to another couple, and he became the chief steward on the Wickersham, which is a boat that runs the Alaska Main Highway System up from, at the time, Skagway, Haines, all the way down to Seattle, Prince Rupert, et cetera, which was kind of cool. My mom worked in the post office, like Bill's mom, uh, for 30 plus years. But unfortunately, with all that being said, you know, and being in an isolated community and what have you, both my parents became alcoholics, bad alcoholics. And, and just really got got rough for us. And then, frankly, at about third grade, my dad decided to take off. So that made it even worse, right? There's a lot of kids with uh, not a lot of resources and a very isolated community, just not a lot of money. So it kind of kind of made life a little bit more difficult. But I'm happier to note my family <clears throat> today, as we we speak, is I've been married to my wife or been with my wife since 1980, and been married to her since '92. So pretty much all of your adult life, that's for sure. Uh, we lived uh, and have lived in Gig Harbor for, well, most of our adult life, at least since uh, 89. My wife is also, or is in healthcare as well as an RN for a neonatal intensive care unit. <clears throat> we have a couple kids. Our oldest is a graphic designer and our youngest, who's 19 now, he's, <clears throat> he's an aspiring firefighter. So, you know, I talked, I actually texted Bill the other day and said, hey man, you got a new job? So, if you're a firefighter, fire chief out there and stuff, and you're looking for a, a really strong, smart uh, kid, uh, that that's the, the kid to have. Awesome. Well, you said fires uh, is hiring, so I'll have to uh, boy, aren't they? Get his information later. Yeah, Good. We're, we're gonna work on it. We're gonna get him there. So. You go. Yeah, I would prefer that he be with you. East Pierce, not East, East Side. Well, it's, it's one of the East. It's good. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, <to remember. laughs> so Bill, how you been? Sounds like an older son married this weekend. Yeah, yeah last week, yeah. Yeah. yeah, last weekend down in Shale. It was great. Good party. We uh, <laughs> we uh, partied well. 
Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, leave it at that. Well, Andy, thank you for that. You said you started your career in Alaska, mm. and then you went down to Oregon. Yep. Then you ended up in Las Vegas for a while. Yeah. And before shortly coming up to uh, here in Washington, started in Bremerton, and then uh, finally here at Medic One yeah. in 1991. You called it an eye-opening experience. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> you can't go from Alaska to southern Nevada or the southwest United States and, and not have an eye-opening experience. So first of all, people are different. Weather's way different. <laughs> Geography is totally different. And at the time, the the world was different, uh, particularly in the fire service. I would have loved to stay down there and be part of that. But the fire service at the time down there was just not... Uh, was not nearly advanced, uh, was not nearly as progressive, and was not nearly uh, dedicated, uh, maybe. And I don't, I don't mean that as a disrespect, but it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity in which uh, needs to be learned. And with them, they eventually did take advantage of it, and, and they got to be very, very good at their trade. And we all know people that have came from different parts of the country. Chief Morris here at Puget Sound was from the same my same cloth as I am. So it was nice to see that uh, take off. And there's others down there as well in Henderson and Las Vegas and Clark County that all do an exceptional job today. So going down there from the cold to the to the heat was oppressive mm -hmm. to say the least. And that was kind of a, a paradigm shift for me. So when you when you talk about being in Vegas, man, that's that's a totally different world. What do, what do you, would you say would be a like a couple of the things that were different down there? Well, first of all, the speed. Uh, there's always calls, right? Or and, and and mind you, this is in the 80s, the early 80s. So even then, there was some influence mm -hmm. that was kind of sitting on the outside, and they all think, you know, it's like, well, this is all organized crime or whatever. Yeah, it might have been. Uh, the fact of the matter was is that um, it's a city, and uh, it doesn't stop. It constantly moves and evolves, and there's the, the transient population in there, you know, by the minute. Uh, the call volume was way different than what I expected. Typically, you know, it was typical 24-hour period was about 22, 15 to 22 calls in a, in a, uh, a busy time. And, and uh, I, um, I, I kind of reflect back and go, what was a really busy day in my career? 34. Yeah. And that's, you're just getting just trashed by, you know, one thing after another. So. Uh, and and things were, were different. The the structure of, of of how first response was back then was slightly different, and um, there wasn't as much attention given to it as there is today, which uh, is a good thing that we've kind of evolved and, and gotten better. So you know, a lot of us make this track this change in our our career path. That you know, for us, I chose to stay on kind of the fire side. I always would have loved to have been a paramedic. Yeah. You know, talk a little bit about your choice. Mm -hmm. To kind of move into paramedicine instead of being on the fire end was that something intentional or was that something that you just kind of ended up happening through you know getting your credentials and becoming a paramedic yeah well let's kind of go back a little bit first and then we can kind of delve into that because i think it will help better kind of explain things of how things really went i started young too the small community that we had was a volunteer and volunteer department only. And my uncle, Uncle David, who I have great admiration and, uh, for, or had, unfortunately, he's passed us. But uh, that guy really kind of led the way for me. And he had a close buddy who was a fire chief, uh, 
Chief Wallace, and, and that dude was. And this is in Alaska. This was in Haines, yeah. Haines. So a small town, not like yeah. you going to Anchorage. But, yeah. Uh, and and I always wanted. By the way, I've, I've been in Haines when the family moved down there. We went to Haines and caught the ferry. Down. Yeah, that's how you get it. The Malaspina was the yeah. ferry then. There you go. They have good memories. <laughs> yeah. It's still in in action. So is it Malaspina still? Around? Yeah, Matanuska Malaspina. Malaspina maybe have gone now, but I got. A, a, uh, we were just up there uh, a little while ago. And, but we we I wanted to be a fireman. I thought, oh, that's cool. I mean, I like the fire department. My dad was in it early, my uncle was a big part of it, and this uh Frank Wallace, the chief, who was a big part of our family too. And and I wanted to be kind of part of that whole deal. And but 16 was a minimum, and you had to be an EMT. And that was something relatively new. And most of the people on that department, I think there was like seven people that had an EMT, and they said, Yeah, you gotta get this EMT thing. So as soon as I hit six, uh, 16, they said, hey, we're going to send you to EMT training. And I thought, Whoa, this is so cool. <laughs> and you had to go to Sitka to do that. Mm -hmm. So they, the uh, big send, town yeah, they send you down to the big city of Sitka the, uh, to the Alaska State Trooper Training Center there on Mount Edgecombe. Uh, and I thought, or I think it was. And, and it was so cool, right? So you do this and, and became an EMT and came back and was a firefighter EMT there, if you will. And thought, this is my destiny. This is really what it's all like. And and that was the intent all along. But I also thought, well, I'm going to kind of forward think this a little bit and realize that, well, this whole paramedic thing might be something. It, there might be something to this. So as I got closer to my senior year and stuff, I, my grades started to come up. I started to be a little bit more responsible as a, a young adult and <clears throat> stop doing the things that make you non-responsible. And, um, and then kind of got... To the point where oh okay i can i can win some scholarships and so i got a few scholarships and a, and a grant and and was able to get into ohsu oregon health sciences university which is the state of oregon's paramedic training program at the time things have changed significantly but at the time it was good so at at age whatever it was you know when i graduated from high school i went went down there expecting that after everything was said and done i would be back with anchorage fire that was my whole deal right um so i actually uh, went back to Anchorage Fire for my internship. What age was that? Nineteen. Uh, yeah, nineteen. Yeah, about at that point, nineteen. So you were still bouncing back and forth between fire, yeah, paramedicine. Wow. Yeah, and Anchorage Fire. You know, unfortunately, when I got up there and started doing it, Anchorage Fire was was uh, one focus, and you either were a paramedic or you're a firefighter. I'm like, well, this is stupid, but I, it's their thing. But they all seem to be. You know, they all seemed to get along. They were in the same house. They, you know, they they worked for Seattle Fire Department, municipality of Seattle, uh, uh, Seattle uh, of Anchorage, and uh, it all looked good. So that's the way I wanted to. Unfortunately, after finishing paramedic training and becoming a National Register paramedic and being an EMT four in the state of Oregon, I uh, went back to Anchorage to try to get a job, with them, but they weren't hiring, and they had they didn't hire. They had these really these cold snaps, if you will, for a long time without nobody was picked up. Nobody, but nobody wanted to leave. Yeah. These were coveted positions. These guys made good money, worked a great schedule, weren't otherwise just beaten up all the time. This was a total difference from from uh, from my future, which was Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of thing how things kind of went. Yeah, you're kind of right there during the height of all that uh, all that oil money. Yeah. You know, so they were they were at great contracts. I mean, I remember my brother. I mean, he and then they sunset a lot of their contracts. Yeah. And, he would make more money than his shift BC as an engineer, and he wasn't even an EMT. Like they, at that time, they didn't 
you can just be a, a first aid or a first responder bands first aid person yeah. and be on the you know be on the drugs so. yeah and they did they yeah they were wonderful people they had a great i love working station one is a big house right they had a rescue they had an engine truck and a and a medic yeah, which house. they did call a rescue as well but that was kind of cool and <clears throat> frankly trying to stay up there and be up there uh was the whole plan however you know you got to work right so a, a buddy of mine was in las vegas and he's like hey man you can come down here, kind of get your feet wet, and then eventually go back. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I'll go back there to Las Vegas for some training. And again, this is where your eyes are wide open when you get off that plane. You're like, oh, uh oh, what, what have I done here? And you realize real quick that it may be different. So I was, I tested there and was selected. And not, not that it was a big deal, but I uh, worked there for a few years, hoping that I was hoping, because I liked the desert. I really liked the desert. Uh, I was hoping, however, that the fire department would change and would become a little bit more proactive and more entertaining of some flexibility and some adaptability. And they just, they really, unfortunately, weren't. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to bail out and go back. And um, I was looking at the fire departments here in the Northwest because we had spent some time in Deep Harbor. And so I, I, I came back up here, uh, tested. Uh, with with Thurston County originally, I, before I left down there, excuse me, Thurston County originally, and Thurston County, they didn't like hiring people that really, you know, weren't weren't part of that area, I guess. And so, no, I was did really well twice and, and was not selected. And then eventually tested with, with the next year, I think, tested with, uh, with uh, Kitsap County. They had a consortium up there of testing. Went up there and tested, thinking, "All right, you know, here here goes the fire department." And I was fortunate; I got three job offers within the first couple of weeks, which was good. I did very well again on that test, so I was really happy about that, and got picked up by Bremerton. And then that was it; was good. Now it was it was really smooth sailing. I love being a fireman; I really did. I mean, you spend a lot of time honing those skills up there. A lot of classes, a lot of it's an older town, right? So a lot of balloon construction, a lot of fire. You chase a lot of fire. You did a lot of things. But I really had a a desire to be, you know, be that paramedic all the time. And unfortunately, they they didn't, you know, they, they didn't give you a, th that much of an opportunity to to kind of to, to do that. And and at the time, medicine was a little bit different. And I was like, man, I gotta I gotta get out of this, right? So I, I made the, the the choice by looking elsewhere, and I I looked at at uh, King County Medic One as being, I know this is a pretty cool operation here. I like the way they they are. They're you know they're based off of Seattle's model at the time, and it seems uh, pretty good fit to me. So I did I did step into that, and and went that went that route, and didn't really look back. However, um, I got to tell you, it it is really weird doing one thing. You get really 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 good at it, but you also can get tired. And if you don't have some other things to do, some other places to go when you need to go, uh, it, it can wear on you. And that, that can result in some, some long-term effects. Not, and some of them aren't really good. And let's just be honest with them. And they can affect you in the long run. So kind of before, and I think that's a great point, you, you know, before we get to talk a little bit about that, let's talk about King County Maycoin. I mean, arguably one of the top, paramedic programs in the nation you know i mean I, I i know a little bit about the fact that you know that that they are <laughs> very very good 
But when we pull the cover back a little bit and we take a look at them as an organization, as far as leadership, you know, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from working at Gingani Medic One? And I'm not talking about field stuff now. I'm talking more about the leadership part of, of King County Medic One. What are, what are those things that they do very, very well? And then give us a couple of things they could improve on. One of the one of the big ones for, for us is take nothing for granted. That that will save your backside nine times out of ten, if not ninety-nine point nine mm-hmm. times out of ten. And and I learned that very early during our selection or during our, our uh, exit interviews, which is essentially the final assessment you get before you come out of, out of, of, of training. And it doesn't matter if you're going to Seattle or going to King County. Um, they kind of ask you a, a number of, of questions and they put you in a lot of different situations. And, and one of them was that they put you in a situation where it's really an awkward situation. It's a situation in which you can very easily go down the wrong road by making assumptions and they may make it very clear when you're getting ready to leave their after the fact that you screwed that up you screwed that up because you made an assumption you took something for granted and we just can't do that and that's kind of one of the biggest things that we probably do very well is to don't don't make assumptions and don't take things for granted um, from from a leadership perspective but there's there's just so many of them bill and i wish i could Kind of capitalize all of them right here but i think further down we can kind of kind of itemize those out and one of the things i've always really been impressed with king county make one is their is their training program their onboarding right they bring people on and they put them through the ringer mm-hmm. so to speak i mean they really are they have honest conversations we've talked about this whole constructive leadership concept is a thing that i've been talking about over the last couple of podcasts and that's you know not being critical yeah but I do feel like we've lost a little bit of that in the fire service where people get offended, you know, if you were to correct them on yeah. that stuff. I think King County Make One has done a very good job of keeping that in there. How do you how do you make that though so it's not felt punitively yeah. and people well, aren't sensitive and you know, we I want to let listeners know something real quick. We we haven't talked about this at all. And frankly, we have never talked about we as Medic One have never talked openly about what used to happen versus what happens now. And what used to happen was is that each medic unit had a, their own medical director because at that time they were isolated. So Medicaid was assigned to Auburn Federal Way and so on and so forth. Um, they used to have medical review day or whatever you want to call it. And they would, it's basically chart day. So they would pull up the charts and it would be a free for all. They would go through all these charts and if there was an error if someone did, you know, what the hell were you thinking stuff? And, and it got brutal. It got brutal. They would call you out and basically tell you, you know, you're, you suck. You know, you're not good at this. You should, you know, try a different profession. And, so, you know, maybe embellishing or elaborating a little too far. But um, it was hurtful a lot of times. Now, the, you know, the people that's kind of sat on the, on the periphery, you know, basically were protected. But but the younger generation, I think, were kind of, kind of beat up a, a little bit. And that has changed over the years to where now um, the training division here at Medic One still does this, but it does it in such a way where the paramedics present a case and it's much more organized, much more professional, and and everybody's there to learn from it. Not just the people that learn from it, sometimes not in the best way, but they're learning it from it from maybe the input that, that your colleagues can do to help you better 
judge the situation next time. And that is that is really a powerful thing. Is like I think one of maybe you said it is that you know after you're done with a big call and you guys go in there and everybody's you know they talk about the call, but they're not really talking about what went wrong. Right. They're talking about what went right, and that's you don't learn from that, right? We already know what went right, and and the same thing happens in in critical care medicine. Is not everything goes well? As everybody in this room understands, is that one second everything is fine, the next second, uh oh, yeah. this is not good at all. And sometimes those uh oh moments are learning opportunities, and we try to capitalize on those opportunities and help everybody else see those opportunities as well without them themselves having to necessarily suffer some of the of the the pain as a result and i don't mean pain uh physically but mentally when things change and evolve in patient care things change and evolve on the fire ground uh, bad things can happen relatively quickly and if you don't adapt and overcome and react uh, you're going to be in a bad spot and and it's not impossible or unusual to see certain people that have never been there before be a little bit too slow. And that that reactive time may present some other opportunities that could be negative, right? So we try to take those learning opportunities and make them global. And I think Phoenix did that years ago, right? Where they were like, man, so-and-so crashed the truck. Well, let's find out why he crashed the truck. It wasn't that he was in a good mood that day. It was because of X, Y, and Z. And we try to do that very thing, but trying to keep it, keep it real, keep it flat, keep it uh, unemotional as possible, and make sure that that everybody in there goes out of the room that they've learned something. And it's not punitive at all. And, and it's got to be that way because in our business, you know, we have our very low acuity calls the easy ones to handle right we have our tragic calls which actually are very easy to handle too i mean going to a cpr with a dead person is very easy crews are very good at doing that even though it's a tragic call yeah. i mean i think about some of the worst trauma calls i've been at actually they're very easy to handle you know when people are you know ejected sorry to get gross and you know there's obvious mortal right. wounds it's like very easy to handle it's that. just the package yeah. the hard the hard part are the ones that are in the middle right the ones that are still alive looking yeah. at you asking them to save their life yeah. or you know those those mega code type calls are the ones that are really hard and that's where we have to learn and and you know in the fire service it's the same thing it's like learning from maydays learning from after action reviews learning from when person put a fan in the front door and now the fire got bigger mm -hmm. you no know, kind of stuff so it's mm -hmm. yeah i think it's very important to have that those learning moments like you talked about yeah we you know I'll, I'll go back all the way to, to paramedic training at, at seattle and and for the listeners uh to, to be a paramedic in king county you have to go back through training and i was our previous trained paramedic so it was a little bit of an eye-opener right when you go back there and you realize everything that you're drilling on everything that you're being exposed to is for a reason so every day was spent either in the classroom in the, in the or somewhere in the hospital more specifically in the emergency department but but every part of the day you were spent on you spent on a truck so you were being exposed to those learning opportunities day in and day out and it is it is different in that respect than most programs throughout the country and if not in the world is that besides having some didactic or educational opportunities in the training process uh, in the pipeline you also have these huge periods of exposure to on-the-job training and hands-on which as we all are aware is there's a lot of manipulative skills in our business and if you don't have those uh, tailored when you come out of training and you come down to this program 
This program's a different beast altogether. As you know, Bill, th things are, are spun up a little bit differently. And my, my expectations of not only myself, but you mm -hmm. is much higher than maybe the average place. And that, that puts a lot of pressure on everybody to be able to perform and to be able to provide the best services possible to our citizens and visitors of South Kings County. I think we do a far better job than us, to be honest with you. Thank you for that, G-Man. Normally we ask each guest speaker, hmm. uh, what are their keys to an emerging leader? So tell us about what an emerging leader needs, but then also hmm. discuss a little bit about what an emerging leader must not do when it comes to leading. Well, maybe I should reverse it. Maybe I sure. should say what, you know, what not to do first, Perfect. and then Start maybe some things to kind of help Absolutely. Uh, and these are great questions, by the way, you guys. So what not to do as an emerging leader? And this is a, and the reason I, I, I guess I chose this topic was is that we all listen to podcasts or read books or sit in classes. Today, they have, they have a very famous speaker at, uh, you know, that's literally 10 feet away from us right now speaking to a, a, a group full or a room full of people for the next four days. We're, we're surrounded by that all, all the time. And these are some positive things all the time. They help us grow and, and build and, and be good young firemen and be good uh, leaders in the future. Um, unfortunately, my my road to that maybe wasn't the same. Um, and that has a lot to do with, with you know, self-destruction, behavior that was not positive. And I just kind of wanted to talk about that. So as a young person, let me just tell you this, and I'll just make a, a, a quick little quote here. True hell is when the person you are meets the person you could have been. <clears throat> so, and I thought about that when I first heard that quote, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I probably could have done a lot of things differently. And that leads me to believe that as an emerging leader thing, here's some things you just don't want to do. But I was always young, when I was young, rather, I was really self-conscious, and I, the way I thought people kind of looked at me, I was... Kind of worried about their opinion of me and and uh i i really fear, feared failing and i think that might have been you know a, a process in my upbringing when you have you know that type of a background where your parents are alcoholics and stuff and they're kind of absentee all the time and they're not really helpful and they're not really positive and it just it, you know just wasn't a good a good deal at the time unfortunately i i, I look back then and go well those are all excuses and they really are excuses but negative impacts during your upbringing can affect your character and i think my character was somewhat tainted as i grew up and i've kind of had to kind of change that and so in that process i was also doing things to 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 build my character to try to protect that facade from people seeing in so i would embellish stories i would you know you know be disrespectful to, to people i would you know distract them with things and, and ultimately i think i was a bully and that's just not you know it's not what we need in our profession that's the damn true so i guess throughout my career my career i really haven't been a real good team player at all um, i haven't been a good member of my team and i haven't been a real good member of this department um and that's kind of hurtful so yeah i i frankly believe i really wasn't pleasant to be around a lot of times during my career and you know, I could be condescending or egotistical and, and sometimes just a know-it-all or even a jerk. And, you know, it did hinder me. It did prevent me from getting to where I needed to go. And now I look back at it and reflect and go, oh, yeah, I screwed that up royally. And I really pissed off a lot of 
um, people in the in the process, and it hindered my my direction. So for those I think think for those out there that I that I was mean to or otherwise was negative to or disrespectful to, I'm truly sorry. Man, I feel like I should give you a hug. Yeah, but I mean, I was driving people away, and uh, you know, don't do that. So you know, people didn't want to work with me or for me for the most part. Um, the one, I guess, one of the benefits of all this at the, the very top of it is, is that you know I worked hard to be uh, as good as I could be at my job, which which did maybe help uh, with some relationships in that respect. So, but my behavior was still unpredictable, and my direct boss even told me one time, and I said, I don't know, you know, which Andy's going to come to work today, mm -hmm. and that that kind of hit hard. And, I missed a number of promotional opportunities. I was number one on the list on several occasions, and I got passed off. And that 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 was kind of an eye opener. But frankly, in the end, I'm glad it happened yeah. because it it humbles you and makes you realize, oh Jesus, I'm not doing what I should be doing to get where I need to get. So I better change things. And that's kind of where we're at. So that said, I really didn't play by the rules or yeah. didn't really care much what ever anybody really thought about. And it was kind of that my way or the highway and. And often too, because I worked so hard to, to get good at my craft, I expected sometimes, I expected too much from people, mm -hmm. from all levels, right? From our firefighters to for, for, to our leadership. And that, that did create some chaos. Yeah. So, you know, and the old saying is, how you do something is often how you do everything. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was doing something yeah. the same way every time, and it just became just destructive as all can be. So essentially, um, yeah, I was down all the time, just negative, negative, negative. And I think mental health-wise, I was in a, in a bad spot. And if, if really, if I didn't make any changes, I think I was going to end up on the kind of the wrong side of the dirt because I'd contemplated it. I'd thought about that next step, which was suicide. And, you know, that hurt. So, you know, it's, you don't think about those things or even don't really talk about those things, but you kind of have to. And realize, ah, oh, these are these are uh, times in your life in which you know you're really exposed and you really need to uh, to kind of grasp reality and and move forward. Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna make a bad choice, and that choice is is permanent yeah. in, in that particular case. So, so I didn't didn't head that way, which is good. So, what's the old saying? Is is uh, limits end when vision ends, and I needed. I, I really, really needed to kind of re-engage and realize, oh, Jesus, I mean, this isn't a bad spot here. So yeah. uh, the art of possible is, is happens, and it did in this particular case. Sorry. No, I, I, I just wanted to go back to something, and the, and I might be cutting you off here, but I want to kind of go back to, you, you, in your in your talk, we kind of, a little dark there for mm -hmm. a moment, you know, we talked a little bit about, I mean, even to the point of suicide, when mm -hmm. you were talking about and I, and I heard a lot of stuff in there about, you know, you felt like you were a bully and yeah. you weren't a good team player and some of that. But you obviously came to the other side. Yeah. You know, you obviously survived those thoughts and those yeah. impulses. I also heard some really good stuff in there. You know, you talked about uh, not sucking, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a concept even I brought up in my podcast yeah. is that there's so many organizations out there that'll do anything to win, right? But I think a good space to be sometimes is, it's not about the win, but it's just about not sucking, yeah. right? At 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 your job or whatever it is in life, you know, because you don't, you're probably never going to be the best at anything, right? You're never going to be the best 
uh, firemen. There's other people who are firefighters oh. out there who, you know, who are always going to be that. Yeah. Um, I talked about, you know, football for me was the thing that I thought I was going to be the best at. And I found someone who was going to be better and right. ended up with a career ending injury. Um, humility, you know, that whole thing of becoming humble was something that you needed to work through and get to that point. And then last, just being a good team member, you yeah. know, being whatever it takes to be that good team member, being respectful for your partner on the rig. I know, you know, in the medic world, you have one other person a lot of times in a small space right. and you have to really be a good team member and being part of that chemistry is all part of that. So, but let's talk about mental health a little bit. A big topic in the fire service, yeah. a big topic for, you know, I mean, I know all of our organizations have those examples of people who need help. So how do we get to the point where we can can help those people? Like, what was it for you? And, you know, and you don't have to be necessarily no, super specific. No. But what was it for you that made it so that you, you were able to work through that? Yeah. Well, let me make it clear right off the bat. You can't medicate yourself out of the problem. Make that very clear, right? You have to understand, okay, I've got a problem. And how do I address that problem? And now medications might be part of that. When I got into that dark spot, and it didn't happen overnight, right? And, and uh, you know, because I think mental health is, is an organic thing that occurs early on and, and just gets worse if it's not really addressed. But realizing, uh-oh, you might have a problem. And it may take someone else to say, uh-oh, you, you have a problem. Um, and in my case, it was, a, 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 I think, a combination of both, right? I had people at work tell me, hey, man, something's not right. And I had people at home, hey, man, something ain't right. And then I had myself going, hey, man, something ain't right. Let's do something about this. And uh, the first step for me was recognition that I got a problem. Mm -hmm. And this is a mental health problem. I'm not addicted to anything. I just want to make that clear. I'm not, I've never been a drug addict or alcoholic or things of that nature. But uh, realizing that you've got a problem, particularly when I got to that real dark spot when, you know, things were really falling apart and that that consideration was was happening. And then, okay, there are resources available to each one of us that you need to take advantage of. And at the time, it was very small and actually somewhat of a stigma. Mm -hmm. um, so you didn't make it very overt that that or very public that you were you were suffering because you essentially were suffering in silence right it's a, because, it's a form of weakness right oh, it's a sign of weakness oh yeah. you can't you can suck it up buttercup yeah. right you, I mean, you, you can't take it you yeah. get out yeah right? and that you're obviously not fit for this exactly right so i was fortunate enough to go see a um, psychiatrist that said oh man i you know i know a little bit about your guys's profession my my uh, brother's a firefighter yeah, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, you, you you guys have problems, a lot of problems, and unfortunately, I don't see enough of you. So I thought, oh, okay, this guy actually I, he might get me because um, the other one didn't, and uh, that was kind of the first step in this journey of healing and getting better and getting on the right track to make sure that my family was good, and my career was good, and and ultimately I was good in the long run. So that's kind of where. So I guess ultimately, what you're saying is. And then maybe Bill hinted at it. It's okay to oh, I have to be honest with yourself. It's okay yeah. to ask for help. Yeah, and we you know? and we've developed your teams for for yeah. that too. You can go to them. There's also resource. Every one of the medic quarters has a resource resource board on it. The consortium uh, has a resource for mental health um, all around us in Thurston County. Really hot here. Those guys are really good at what they're doing as well. They've had some some issues down there before and. And they have really capitalized and, and done a good job to help their members. 
as well as our members and other members within the area to, to uh, work through some tough spots. And we've used them, they've used us, we use the consortium, Smelting Mental Health, as, as well, uh, those resources. And, and I would think that a, a lot of us in our profession, probably 10 plus percent, I would hope, if uh, you know, are one way or another seeking help, because I think this is a, a more of a global problem than we really yeah. believe that it really is. And, and just speaking on behalf of myself and myself only is don't wait. Yeah. If you start to feel that you're starting to fall down that that rabbit hole and, and uh, things are getting a little dark, man, it is time to fix it. Uh, but don't fix it with alcohol or drugs because all too often in our profession, we see people fall into that cycle and it, and it turns bad and you uh, will have trouble turning around once you start going down that road. I think a key element to, and you said this, is that you had people who were around you who recognized it and they, they had that uncomfortable conversation with you about, dude, you know, but, but, but what the... F are you doing? Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say it. I didn't want Brilliant to beep it out. Um, but what you know? What the, what the F are you doing? And I think that as long as we continue to work on kind of demystifying mental health, you know, one of the things you know that I did this year with this recruit class is I brought a guy in um, to talk about mental health yeah. at Academy. You know, so it starts that day one of coming in to the fire service yeah, to say, hey, it, and he had a great you know, he had a great uh, twist on it. He talked about, you know, your academy group that you're with right now are going to be friends that you're going to have for 30 Forever, years, yeah. you know. And so they'll be able to lean on. You'll know those people. Much better than you, probably. They're much better. Yeah. I mean, I look at Gary right now. I mean, we've known each other for 30 years, and he knows me. I probably spend as much quality time with him as I have with my own family members. Um, you know, when you think about working shifts together, being on a medic unit yeah. together, being on a fire engine together. Um, and so... You know, I, I'm comfortable with coming to him and saying, dude, you're not in a good headspace, right? Yeah. You need help. And But it's also a really uncomfortable conversation to have, but someone needs to have it. Well, and I, I've heard it both ways, right? I've heard, you know, medics say, oh, you know, I think so-and-so is in a bad spot. Well, have you talked to so-and-so? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, it's really not my job. It's like, well, it really is all of our jobs to make sure all of us go home healthy. And all of us not only go home healthy now, but go home healthy for the rest of our lives. And that's not just the mental health part of it, it's also the physical health part of it. And we've worked really hard throughout the years and I think in our profession and with a lot of help from the IFF to identify mental health as being a real problem within our industry and to give us the resources necessary to address it. And they've done a remarkable job, including the health and wellness back east and places like that. that are well, there's a saying, and I love the saying, it's, I mean, every member is a peer support member, mm -hmm. right? You're in the peer support team, like every like firefighter, EMS, a chief, company, we're all responsible for peer support, yeah. not just the members on the team. So Chief Andy, there are some things that you really want emerging leaders to know and to do. The first one was talking about how leadership is not a rank. The second one was the metaphor of discipline weighing ounces, regret weighing tons. Would you please elaborate on some of those to our listeners? Yeah. So the leadership is is really not a rank, really. It's a set of behaviors. It really is. I mean, you know, we're all born with with a little bit of talent, but we really have to work hard to, to kind of get where we need to get. Don't expect anything to be given to you, Gary. Jesus. So demonstrating. And it hasn't been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Demonstrating, you know, 
the, the humility and the patience and kindness and, and in our profession in particular, you've got to be honest with yourself and more, more particularly, you've got to be honest with each other. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're lying to yourself and you're lying to your brothers and sisters, which we just don't do. Res be respectful, treat everybody the same way, treat everybody as if they're important. You know, not just as, as like, you know, it's a family member, but someone that's, you know, visiting and they get the nice, you know, bedroom for the day. Um, selflessness, always, you know, go out there and, and work hard for everybody else as well. Uh, it's not just about, about you and you got to meet the needs of others as well. Being courageous, uh, that I think that um, truly is a passion, not a position. Um, and you've just got to really embrace that when, as much as you can, as often as you can. Um, forgiveness, uh, really understanding that people aren't going to be perfect. They're going to make mistakes and understanding that when they do mistakes, you help them correct that. But at the same time, forgive them for their mistakes, uh, providing that they're not reckless in doing so, which is a different topic altogether. And being committed to the overall uh, organization. I think the next one is um, the discipline part of it. And the saying is, is discipline weighs ounces, uh, regret weighs tons. And, and I think Bill is a prime example of that he probably is regretting not coming in and working out with us this morning. So, and we go through that in a career, right? Because we miss opportunities and we go, oh, and oftentimes it's just simply discipline. There's a workout right. tomorrow, right? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, there is. There is, right? Yeah, there is. It's, it's uh, uh, leg and back day. Oh, easy, light stretching. You're going to yeah. kill on that one. So for, for uh, number two, I think for the, the discipline part is, is, is always take that and see it through to the end. You know, you're not really done. And you shouldn't quit until you're done. You know, that's not time to quit. So you've got to get through there. Uh, resist the impulse. And what I mean by that is, is that there's too many things that are pulling you in so many different directions. But if this is your priority, this is your priority. Don't let little things pull you. Uh, another thing in, in the career, I think maintaining focus, uh, understanding, okay, what am I going to do? And, and a lot of uh, leaders like yourself, Bill, will say, I don't care what you want to do in your life. If you want to be a firefighter and you want to be a firefighter and that's it, there's nothing wrong with it. That's a great job. But you're maintaining that discipline to be that firefighter and to be the best that you possibly can be so you can contribute to that team in every, in every aspect. Same goes with as you progress up through the, the leadership ranks, right? You've got to have discipline and that focus to do so. And you got to maintain that and understand that people will come in and go, oh, you know, what do I need for this next promotional test? What I should be studying? Well, you shouldn't have been studying when you got hired. Mm -hmm. You should never stop. If you're thinking about promoting, you should start studying on day one and never stop studying. Yeah, it may be different materials. It may be different EFSA books. It may be different policies and procedures. But it's still progress and still make the progress. Don't wait for six months out or a year out and expect that you're going to come out number one because you probably won't unless you're lucky or you've got some mad skills like Gary over there. Yeah. Bill, too. I hear Bill. Bill, <laughs> Bill doesn't know number two. With that, because this podcast is about leadership and leaders, just like anybody else, are humans. We all make mistakes, we all have failures, whether leaders want to admit it or not. And I believe some of the best leaders out there are okay with failure. They're okay with making mistakes, but it's about recognizing how and why those mistakes or failures happen, uh, but also ultimately how they recover to become better. Would you mind sharing a bad day? There's always bad days, right? And good days. Um, some of the bad days that I think I, well, let me just start with 
one right off the bat, one that happens extremely infrequently at medic one, and that's called a med error. And med errors are dangerous. Um, any misstep in, in critical care medicine can be very dangerous. But uh, this particular med error, I was working with Steve, and I won't tell his last name, but you know who it is. Uh, and we were taking a patient up to Harborview from 32s down in Auburn, so that one had been burned. And uh, as a little kid, bang a line this kid, just going to dope this kid up a little bit, make sure the ride is good, right? This kid doesn't need anything more than some pain control and, and uh, some TLC and, and be in the arms of his mom. But So I popped a line in this kid real quick. Um, he handed me some morphine, and uh, I said, I was at a milligram, because it was a small kid, right? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's a milligram. And he just kind of said it in the mumbling his mouth, well, I thought it was just the milligram. And I, I'm really sure that I that's what I heard. And I pushed it, and it was 10 milligrams. Um, and that's a bad, 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 bad day uh, when you make a medication error. But more importantly, if you make a medication error and don't catch it right off the bat, fortunately, we, we, we caught it when he said, you just give the whole thing? And I said, yeah, you told me it was more than I said, no, I think I told you it was 10 milligrams. Well, I didn't hear 10. But that was the only time in my career where I had made a med error. Unfortunately, it was with a medication that's, well, it's fixable, right? We can, we can fix the, the bad side of that medication. And, and we didn't really need to, but uh, that that to me was a, a failure of communication, a failure of situational awareness, a failure to go through the proper steps of, of med admin um, and dealing with a patient directly, you know, the seven whatevers. And that kind of shocked me that, that that error was made. It just shocked me that we'd actually just done that or I had just done that. and. Um, after the call, we sat and talked about it and said, you know, these are the things that we absolutely should have done. And we, we do all, all the time. But the fact is that we got, we got um, lazy, uh, we got soft, and, uh, and there could have been a potentially bad outcome. And fortunately, there really wasn't. That was really a bad day. But I've also seen other things where it's just, you know, uh, seen an engine company inadvertently, um, inadvertently uh, call someone out dead. That wasn't dead. Uh, that required us to get to get involved afterwards. Unfortunately, the patient did die. And not saying that that what what happened resulted in their death. That's not the case. This person was probably going to die, and it was probably going to happen within you know the next few hours anyway. But taking those the time in a call like that and and trying to uh, the try try to set everybody down and make people realize, hey, we're human beings. We're going to make a mistake, and when we make a mistake, when, not if, but when we make a mistake, let's take advantage of the situation, capitalize on it, and make the situation better, not worse. And that, unfortunately, doesn't happen very often in medicine, particularly critical medicine, because it's, oh my God, you know, you did something wrong. In this particular case, sitting them, sitting everybody down and saying, hey man, what, what went bad here? Well, okay, this went bad, but what went good as well? And now let's make sure that we don't go down that bad route anymore and do the right things in the right order uh, to have a better outcome. And I think that's that's key, and we'll, we'll move this forward here, is uh, we're all going to make mistakes. We yeah. talked about this in episode one, episode two, episode three now. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all human. But I think what you talked about was key is, okay, we made a mistake. Let's sit down. Let's talk about the mistake. Yeah. And don't talk about losing credibility if you don't address the mistakes. And how do we ensure this doesn't happen again, right? Because if you don't and you ignore it, well then, 
okay, it, it'll probably happen again. It'll probably happen again. So we don't make mistakes, but let's try not to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So, and I think yeah. you know, I I laugh a little bit because I think about if you if you just go on and watch fire porn on YouTube and just look at you know people and what they do, we make the same mistakes over and over and over again yeah. in the fire service, right? And, and we continue to make them. But where people get better is if you start, you know, addressing them and learning and talking about them. Yeah, boy, that's so true. All right, so this is that hot copy time. So we're going to talk about a hot topic of your choosing here, mm. Chief Andy. There was a topic out there that you really wanted to discuss, a hot topic in 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 not just uh, in the fire service today, but stuff that we talked about at the coffee table. So let's talk about recruitment and retention. Now, that seems to be a big part of our industry these days is trying to get the the right people for the right jobs in the right amount of time and it seems like every recruit class that kind of comes up there's always this push against the ceiling it's like man we're we're, we're not getting the recruits that, that we used to get or we're not getting the volume that we used to get for the the number of positions that we really need to and for whatever reason that may be but it's our responsibility to figure out ways to recruit people and to retain people um and particularly when we have such a wide demographic, let's throw a net out there and get the wide demographic. Be forward about it, be real about it, be um, you know intentional about it, if you will. And that's kind of where we're at, if, if, and I think the industry-wide is, is really kind of the whole deal. Our, our issue is not necessarily retention, it's just the recruiting part of it. And I think that goes on with, with a lot of uh, fire departments as well, because you know what we try to look at is that we select the right person for the job, not the best person. And you go, what the hell? Why would you be doing that? That doesn't make any sense. But the reality is, is that <clears throat> when you assess people, you know, they may be the best person on paper, but when you put them in an assessment center and really start to uh, squeeze them down, and we talked about, uh, I think, about training earlier. Well, to even to get to training, you've got to go through a pretty rigorous assessment process, assessment and selection process that actually truly identifies the, the candidate's weakness weaknesses sometimes as, as well and sometimes people raise raise to the top you think that that he's not going to fit or she's not going to fit and then before you know it oh man this person you know did so much better they you know you see in special forces a selection and stuff like that they're the real yoked uh dude that that uh, you know the norm goldens and uh, berlin Mazza, you know, come in and and uh and uh before you know it they get washed out because you know they're, they may be the best person, but they're not the right person. And uh, they, they kind of fall off the edge of the, of the field. So, you know, if you can re retain your people, you can recruit, you know, your recruitment expenditures fall exponentially, I think, in a business, for, uh, business sense. So provide, you know, excellent training for those individuals and opportunities for those individuals. Provide excellent equipment. Really importantly is, is that, you know, although they may be a recruit or a firefighter or a second-year firefighter or whatever, make sure that they have input. Make sure that they're part of the conversation and not always left off. You know, that's never good. You've always heard the thing about that 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 power ratio where, you know, everybody else or the, 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 only the highest talk and the, the, the youngest say nothing. And the youngest say nothing and before you know it, there's a bear coming up the trail because they were told to keep their mouth shut. Well, we don't want that at all. So. Uh, we need to re reward those individuals for educational goals. As importantly, we also need to kind of re think about rewarding people for physical standards. A lot of departments think, uh, well, they're getting a paycheck, right? And, but they'll coach. 
they'll just sit on that that line of being okay. Whereas there are some departments now that are actually going, hey, guess what? We're going to give you a $10,000 bonus at the end of the year if you continue to meet our physical fitness standards or exceed them or in this percentile or whatever. Huge, huge deal for our industry. Huge deal. And, and we, we're probably going to see more of it. But in the past, you know, it was kind of a no-no. Uh, being involved as an individual, rewarding these, these, these individuals, uh, big union involvement. I think our union uh, participation in, in, at all levels is hugely important to keep people retained and understanding that people feel much better when they know they're represented and know that, that I got your back and that, you know, you know we're going to do the right thing to make sure that uh, you continue to have a good life and a good career um, and that we will protect th those rights of that worker all the way through. Uh, trust that department. You know, you trust your department. If you don't, go somewhere else. You should be trusting your department or building a culture that's trustworthy. That's huge. Uh, foster, again, foster those, and get those relationships and engage at all levels. That's huge. Uh, one thing that we do have, which is different than a lot of departments or a lot of uh, industries outside of ours, is a schedule. We have this great schedule where we can do so many different things, which often oftentimes leads to good hobbies and great hobbies. <laughs> Uh, a lot of traveling and fun and motorcycles and you know things and things of that nature. Always, always make sure these people have a, an opportunity for career advancement, and that should be told to them early. You know that like, oh, that's crap. Why is this guy going for you know a lieutenant's exam at at, at uh, three years in or four years or five years in? Well, that, that's not up to you to decide. That's up to them to decide. So help them get to where they need to be in their own mind. Or in, and so another thing is a good money and, and, and in the very end, a great retirement. And part of that great retirement is this, provide the services necessary to help those people get to retirement and live through retirement, not die at year two post-retirement. Mm -hmm. That sucks. We see that all too often. So give them the resources early and often, and hopefully everything will work out. And so what we're seeing is these people are having much longer lives and enjoying themselves further on. So that's always well, I got to admit, Chief Andy, the recruitment piece I love. My organization and King Countywide, I'm sure, as you know, is uh, is diving deeply into the recruitment piece. So thank you, number one, for you know diving into this one. Uh, you mentioned we're trying to recruit people. When you say recruiting, that means we're proactively going out, finding good people that would fit well into our organization or our industry, ultimately to make our organizations grow and to innovate. Right? Um, you think of uh, you think of university programs. When they recruit, they're going out to find not the best person, like you said, right? Best is highly subjective, but more so the person that can grow into and to contribute to our organizations and ultimately make those organizations better. And secondly, I love how you said, you know, when we recruit people, we want to hear from them. We want to listen to them, not shut them out just because they're new. Otherwise, you know, what is the point of recruiting if you're going to hire good people, but you tell them, you know what, you're new, so don't say anything. Um, yeah, that doesn't work, right? If you recruit, have them start contributing on day one, on month one, year one, et cetera, right? I mean, there's a saying out there, you know, we don't hire skilled people to motivate them. We hire already motivated people, but it's our job as leaders to inspire them. Bill? Yeah, I think that just to touch on that real quick too, uh, I think it's key to make sure recruiting for kind of the character. I think that's a big change a lot of organizations is, you know, they're looking more at the person than they are looking at their, their skill set, for example. 
know, yours is a little bit more tech. You have to be a little bit more technically proficient. You got to have some good math skills. You got to have good hand-eye coordination to do your job. But in the fire world, you know, I can take pretty much anyone who has good aptitude, good character values and all those kind of things and turn them into a good firefighter, you know, so we really start recruiting more for character. Mm -hmm. So, and we're seeing that more and more. Yeah. yeah. A strong character, I mean, builds the foundation for the department. Yeah. And, yeah. So that's kind of, I wanted to just, I know that Berlin's going to ask this, and so mm -hmm. I wanted to jump on it before. Please do. You know, something that he's asked all his guests is to talk about non-negotiables. Oh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and all of us have talked about, I talked a little bit about alignment, you know, um, of, of having that leadership alignment and some other things. And I know uh, Pete Brummel talked about, Chief Brummel talked about it too. So talk to us about Andy Tate, leader in uh, King County Medic One. Um, what are some non-negotiables that you have personally that help develop the organization? Well, non-negotiables right up, like beanery talk and stuff of that yeah. nature that, that could actually be effective to people. But I, I think one of them right off the bat is any any form of harassment or discrimination is absolutely a no-go. No-go. Uh, violence, obviously, or breaking the law, you know, even, even you know, we've all been put into that that scenario of, hey, so-and-so stole a, a Snickers bar, you know, at the store. What are you going to do about it? Well, yeah, you don't do that. And that's some of that stuff you don't do. Yeah. Uh, I think Chris Rock made that very clear. <laughs> this is one of those things. Uh, hazing of any type, that's old. Get rid of that. It just doesn't, it doesn't build character at all. It actually uh, hurts people and sometimes kills people. Uh, Off-color anything, that's non-negotiable. You just don't, don't do that at all, ever. Uh, well, you're just joking. <laughs> well, not a joke to all. So, yeah. kind of remember that knowingly, uh, knowingly violating I think any policy of your department that's that's recklessness and that deserves some uh, attention mm -hmm. right right away. Uh, drugs and alcohol are a big, particularly in our business and yours too. Obviously, in our industry as a whole. You know, you don't operate a, you know, multi-ton apparatus running down the street with lights and sirens on, you know, half inebriated. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen those things, very things happen in our industry, which result in, in bad outcomes. Furthermore, uh, as we talked about earlier with mental health, people try to, to treat themselves. Remember, you can't medicate yourself out of everything. And drugs and alcohol are kind of one of those one of those staple people seem to fall on when they're, they're having issues. And that's just a, a, a no a no-go and uh, we've seen more recently with with COVID and the pandemic uh, that people that otherwise weren't really involved in drinking a lot tended to drink a little bit more and I heard that from more than one person I was like huh okay but now what and that now what is uh, you know finding those resources that we have available to everybody and taking full advantage of them plus just talking to what to one another do you really need that every day and here's here's kind of why so that's kind of non-negotiable right yeah it's crazy you bring up the drug thing you know I, I i've been now i'm a leader in an agency that has paramedics and drugs and you know access to drugs yeah and uh you know one of my paramedic instructors you know he talked about that's that's the one area that a lot of paramedics fall into problems now i'm yeah. not just picking on paramedics no. think just for me being a leader now of an organization that has a whole nother dynamic yeah you know of getting in trouble you know well, yeah, if have you, access to narcotics yeah, if you're in healthcare at all and you have access to to narcotics or controlled substances if you will uh it's it's an it's i think it's an easy turn yeah and i'm i'm we're not 
exempt from that. We've right. we've had an issue before, and it was, it's sad because it's devastating. It, it ruins people. Not only does it ruin them, it ruins their family, and it ruins the future. Even if they survive it and go on, they're tagged. Mm -hmm. They're tagged because they're felons. Right. Um, and it, it just is something you just don't want to go down. But you have to have good systems in place. That's the first thing I'm learning now, you know, is you have to have good systems. I started looking at some of the systems, you know, our organization has in place for, for expiring drugs yeah. or other things like that. And you're like, dude, I'm setting themselves up for possibility of yeah. getting themselves in trouble by making it very easy. So you just have to have systems. Yeah, and we have a we have a check system, right? There's yeah. always two permits, right. which may be different than some right. organizations. And yeah. that is a huge benefit to us. Yeah, because we do too. You're, you've always got to double check, including, and when I when I talked about kind of a bad day with, with, with getting morphine or fentanyl or ketamine yeah. or whatever, you know, you're, you're supposed to have that check mechanism in place, right? It's like flying an aircraft. And if you miss one of those checks on that sheet, you know, bad things are about to occur. And in that particular case, it happened. But it's not a big deal to not have an ax on an engine, but it's a big deal to not have a bottle of ketamine on a medic unit. You know what I mean? I mean, that's 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 the next level type of responsibility yeah. when you're in that role. So, well, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Exactly. If it yeah. does happen, we got some major, major, major no, issues. Negotiable. You're, you're right. The controls have to be in place yeah, yeah. at all times. And uh, there's more than one, obviously. Well, Chief Andy, 37 years. First off, congratulations. I hear you're retiring in the spring. Thank you. I'm just going to throw it out there. Not many people can do 37 years. In fact, many, you know, in the last year or two, will try, you know, try to coast into retirement. Um, but you will have done 37 years, right? You called me the other day. In fact, you said, Hey, are you coming to the 6 a.m. workout before we do the podcast? And, you know, to be quite honest, I was like, Yeah, I'll be there. Thank you for the invite. Didn't even think about it, but thank you. Point being is you're, you're still motivated and you're still motivating others. I mean, hell, you're, you're doing this podcast today, offering your stories and perspectives and experiences for others to listen and to learn from. So thank you. Um, but my question is, how did you maintain that drive for 37 years? And when did you know it was time? I'll sit back for a dramatic pause. There you go. How did I do it? Um, I think it's passion. It's not just passion for your, your profession, but passion for the people that you work for and with at all times, because this is a really social group of, of animals uh, and you know being able to interact with people day in and day out be able to um, you know you know leverage that cumulative uh, brain power and physical power to solve a problem has always been very fascinating to me and how people work together um, as a as a as an individual and as a team as a collaborative um, so coming to work every day knowing that that was going to be part of it uh, was not a challenge. It was actually exciting to, to go to work. And frankly, there are times in my career that when you leave the house, you go, Whew, good Lord, I'm glad I'm leaving the house today because someone was about ready to kill me. Uh, and, uh, you know, and everything's, you know, better later on. But, uh, th this is a, this is a, a, an industry of individuals that have to be surrounded with like individuals or individuals with a common goal to fulfill the mission. And that to me is a big deal. Now, Bill, you came from a military background. I, uh, my dad was British, so British military, just go ahead and say British, but British military. So very 
very defined um, aisles, very black and white. And um, that that kind of formulates you a, a little bit. And then you come to work and realize, well, not everybody is the same, first of all, and not everybody's going to be doing things absolutely alike. But collaboratively, we're all going in the same direction. We know that at five or six o'clock tonight, there's we're going to be all around the beanery table and we're all going to be enjoying something together and we can all talk about what uh what's going on with our families and what what's going on with the day and, and what we accomplished and what's 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 to come and then we can also you know complain about our, <laughs> our, our leadership yeah. our leadership as well but that said as 37 years doesn't seem like 37 years it, it really doesn't and that's not you know accounting for the volunteer days mm -hmm. but they don't really Really matter anyway, but what matters is that um, I, I don't look back on it and and uh, go, oh, you know, that sucked, or you know, uh, I didn't have a good time, or whatever. I, I mean, I would say that the vast majority of us are professional. When we leave, we leave with so much uh, fun baggage and so much, uh, uh, so many stories and and little ditties, if you will, that that. That actually make life so much better, and then, but but you're worried. You're at the same time you're worried about what's to come, and then then when you actually start talking to these retired people, it's like, oh, hey, you should have done that a long time mm -hmm. ago. Because what are you thinking of? And why 37 years? I don't, I really don't know. And when you when do you really know that when it's when it's ready? Typically, you're told. Yeah. Um, and I, I I mean that sincerely that when my wife said, hey man, it's you know, you, it, it's time to kind of wrap it up a little bit. That, that's, uh, I think that was the, 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 the start for me is like, she said that a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh, well, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll start thinking about this and getting it done. Uh, that, um, but for some, for, for others, they seem, see, you know, they see a bit of diminishing return. Mm -hmm. And I might be seeing that as well. I just don't want to really admit it, but um, I do see some diminishing return in, and, uh, I, I hope that when I leave here, that I have done enough to, you know, establish a little bit of legacy, so so my successor can uh, just run with it, and I've got to give them a good one. So. I I think it's a little bit of a natural evolution of a leader, um, you know, and and you hinted on at it a little bit that at one point in your career you're really worried about Mrs. Smith and customer service on the outside, right? Running calls, doing a good job on calls taking care of people, all of that. And then, you know, as you promote and as you put bugles on your shoulder and you start having a little bit more responsibility, that's that shift changes to not worrying about Mrs. Smith, mm -hmm. but now worrying about the internal right. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right? The internal part of the organization and swap switching from leadership externally. You know, you have a good system, you have good paramedics are in place out there to run calls. Now you're worried about how do I support them as people? You know, I think that's an important switch. Um, and we need to figure out a way as leaders, how do we encourage the guys who are riding on a, on a medic unit or riding in our fire engines to take that step to become more worried about the organization and becoming, you know, leaders. Yeah, and you find that out too, being real, realizing real quick when you're working one-on-one -on -one with someone, particularly in a medic unit, yeah. uh, where so much is happening and so much responsibility is because they'll, they'll typically make more decisions than any given day than most officers will probably make in months. Uh, and sometimes these decisions are really, I mean, and, and, and I don't want to say that our program's so much different, but it is a little bit different than some organizations. And, and it, 
it forces these individuals to make decisions real quickly. When I came out of training, for an example, you had 30 seconds to triage and decide. Yep. 30 seconds to triage. You guys know this very right. well. You get to the call, you look at the patient, get a quick short report, and you needed to move it on. Either you took that one or, or stopped for a second to really look at it, or you had to move on to the next one. Back then, things moved a lot faster with a lot of responsibility, and that basically came down from, from up top. But understanding that every everybody is a customer, internal or mm -hmm. external alike, and, and it is a bit of a shift to understand that, oh, okay, you know, one day I've got all these people I take care of in, in, in the city of Auburn. Tomorrow, um, I've got, you know, 180 individuals that I take care of internally and have to provide them service, but the service is still the same. Mm -hmm. People are still the most important. I think it's funny, fire departments are so operations specific when it comes to training on fire department stuff, but we do very little training when it comes to EMS, yeah. you know, stuff when we talk about comb combination departments. But, you know, my OICs on the box, you know, those guys riding around on my medic units are making way more life and death decisions than my company officers on right. fire engines when it really comes down to it, you know, and so I think that's a focus that we really got to. You know, a lot of departments have moved away from, but we got to figure out a way to to make sure that that's a priority of what we talk about. Well, I'm going to add something because this was in the early cut. I'll piggyback on what Bill just said. Is we look at our, let's look at our call volumes, right? Or let's look at our statistics. Like seventy percent of what we do is EMS, right? And then the majority of our training events are what fire, fire, right? Let's go out, let's go pull hoses, pull ladders, hydrant, whatever. Absolutely, we need to do, need to. But when we look at the majority of what we do, which is 70% EMS. Uh, but to be a good firefighter, especially around here, means you have to be a good EMT, right? Let's just be honest. Um, in any profession, you must be great at the fundamentals of the majority of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, not the minority of what you do, right? Let's take football, for example. Fresh, professional football players focus on the fundamentals, right? You don't see the Seattle Seahawks out there spending the, the majority of their time doing onside kicks and Hail Mary passes in practice. You just don't. I mean, Bill mentioned in our last episode, right? It's the basis of our training divisions. You have to be good at the fundamentals. And if you're not good at the fundamentals, you cannot, nor should you move on, right? Until you're good at the fundamentals. So Chief Andy, my question here is, would you mind, can you discuss the importance of individuals and crews understanding that being a great EMT makes a great firefighter, but of course, in addition to being proficient on the firefighter fundamentals. So how do we get back to that? Number one, you have to have uh, the drive and determination to do it. Number two, you have to have money. To provide any evolution, be it pulling hose or you know putting on you know a, a, an Israeli trauma bandage, it, it requires money, time, and effort, and that, that's from the top down. So you have to have a leadership team that is willing to invest in the future. And the future is EMS, as we know. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have a dual role here. We have a dual role to, to put out Mrs. Smith's fire, and we have a dual role to uh, help Mrs. Smith off the floor when she's hurt, hurt her hip. So focusing on one thing versus the other is bad. Focusing heavily on one thing versus the other is bad as well. So you have to find a good combination of both, 50-50, I would say. And um, let me just take what we're doing here in the consortium. The consortium now has an MSO. Assigned that will be assigned to the consortium as of January 1, where they're going to start to refocus some of their energies and not that are going to be completely fire centric, but there's going to be a combination of both and making it more a 50 50 ish type uh, response to things. So you need to have the effort, the, the, the people that are willing 
to, to do it and somewhat of a cultural change. You have to be able to manipulate that culture to, re to make people realize, hey man, if you got into the fire service to put out fires, you're in the wrong fire department yeah. because we don't really do that or do a lot of it. Should we be very, very good at it? Absolutely. Uh, but what we do more is take a blood pressure and listen to someone's lung. Uh, long story. <laughs> People just uh, well, uh, but and that was probably one of the reasons why I kind of moved away from uh, Bremerton at the time was I was really disappointed that we were so fire centric and I loved being a fireman, mm -hmm. uh, but we we were not really focusing on where we needed to go because the BLS level at at that time at that department at the time was terrible. Mm -hmm. There was a few really good firefighter EMTs, but the most of them. They could care less yeah. if it was a if it was something that glowed in the night. Oh, that was all on, right? But if it was something that was bleeding, not so much. Yeah. Well, you're talking to someone like myself, right? Uh, I'm a company officer on the rig. You mentioned, you know, leadership, cultural change. Got to have the money. There's some things at the company level that we do right now mm. where we can try to change that culture. You know what? Today we're working EMS today. Yeah. Huh? EMS? We don't we don't do that. Well, we are now. Yeah. So you're talking to people like me that's on the rigs with the crews, hands on, decide what we're working on for the day. So thank you for that. That's uh, yeah. that, that refocus. So um, it's this coffee top off time. This is what we call the rapid fire. Mm. Uh, we'll end our conversation today with asking our guest speaker three quick questions, suggesting three meaningful action items for our listeners to start doing today to grow as leaders. So number one, talk to that newer employee. Talk to that new firefighter, new apprentice, could be a probationary firefighter, someone thinking about taking that next step to be a you know an informal formal leader. What's one thing that they could do today to grow as leaders? To the new employee, learn, adapt, and interact. That's most important. Start first, but you you don't have to win, but start first. You know, always be the first person to, to do something. Do the right things uh, when you're not being watched. Always. Perfect. That established leader, that that emerging leader, newer company officer. Uh, what's one thing that you recommend they do uh, to grow as leaders? Communicate and cooperate. Building those relationships are huge. Be there for everyone and be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah. Which I, I seem to be sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so pay close attention to your team's mental health and physical health, that's for sure. And yours too. Yeah, absolutely. It's Sam. Talk to the senior leader, that chief officer, the, the individual senior member of the organization, recommend an action and behavior that demonstrates or they can do today to grow leaders. Yeah, give your people the, I think the tools and the resources necessary to complete the mission. You know, invest in your people, give them those opportunities and stand back. Give your people the tools and the opportunities to be successful and stand back. Love that. I mean, that's extreme ownership right there. Uh, Jocko said, as far as projects go, let your employees take on those projects, all of it, that way they own it. If you only give them 50% of the project and you micromanage the other 50%, there's no ownership there, right? People want to do well, but you have to give your employees the tools and the opportunities and the space to be successful, right? Let them contribute and you will get a lot more ownership there. I mean, that's, that's where you get creativity, the new ideas, new ways of doing things, the new perspectives. That, in my opinion, is perspective and ownership, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, and also I think being accountable to yourself and your team is huge. Be present for the for the team. Be intentional is kind of a big part of it. Um, I think being honest is ultimately it, where, where they, they want to be able to trust everything that you do yeah. and leading by that example and setting that bar high. Yeah. Uh, so 
don't be afraid to show those weaknesses or failures. And uh, remember, you're a visionary, not a manager. You, you don't manage, you know, you don't manage uh, things here. You're managing people. Yeah. Yeah. I think about in the fire service realm, you know, that when you're an instant commander of the fire, you know, the best command officers, I think, are the ones that give a crew a task location objective. Mm -hmm. And then we don't want to hear back from that crew until when? Until they're completed, the or task, location, news. objective. You know, unless things go bad, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if things are bad or they have a priority traffic we talk about in, in command and control, then we hear from them. But I don't expect for you to hear back from you. I don't need sit reps. You know, I don't want you to need to tell me. Back in the day, we used to tell you, hey, we're, we've gone in the door. You know, we take 10 more steps and yeah. command officers <laughs> are saying, hey, give me, give me a progress report. And you're like, dude, leave me alone. Let me go take care of the things you did you gave me to do mm, and yeah. so i think that's a good a uh, little bit of an analogy of a good leader is to give give your manager give your team give whatever it is their task location objective and then don't expect to hear back from them tell you that they've completed it and then they're successful yeah. or in case things go sideways and you know things aren't the way that they yeah. you thought they were yeah and then support them with that you know if they need help to get to their objective then give yeah. them that help and support yeah well finally we closed with what we call the leadership challenge because of the point of the kitchen tables to learn from the perspectives and experiences from leaders from everywhere we want to spread this conversation as far as possible i'm going to ask you chief andy name one person that you would like to call out on this podcast to challenge them to come guest speak in a future episode wow um I'd like to say, you know, we would we would like to keep it local, uh, but wherever it takes us. But maybe we shouldn't. Uh, maybe I'm thinking somewhere else. And there's a guy by the name of Bruce Evans. He's a chief out in Durango. Um, he was a young aspiring uh, EM, uh, paramedic in Las Vegas, and he climbed the rank, ranks and went directly to the fire department in Anderson, and where he ultimately. Was uh, uh, Chief Morris captain, and oh, kind of went up, went up from there, and, and now is kind of out in Colorado. But that that dude is uh, he's sorted out. Plus, he's a, the president of the National Association of EMTs, and he's involved in the I Chiefs Association big time. And I think he would be a awesome. Great. Thank you. Well, Bruce Evans, I'll gather his contact information, and I will. Oh, I don't have that. Oh, all right. Well, uh, we'll find it somehow. No, just kidding. We'll let him know that he's been officially leadership tagged by Chief Andrew Tate of <laughs> County Medic One. So thank you for that. Um, in closing, thank you everybody for tuning in to episode three of the Kitchen Table. Thank you, Chief Andy, for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Everybody, we hope you found this time valuable. We hope you've we've inspired you to take action and to lead. Until next time, be safe, be intentional, and stay curious.